0: Exodus, it's carefully crafted to introduce to introduce us to the story. It sets the stage for the really important action that's about to come. So the most important things don't happen in these opening scenes, but these opening scenes are really indispensable because without them, the subsequent climactic introduction of the real main character wouldn't make sense. So think of any Uh, Maybe you've been to a Broadway play, any stage play, even locally. Uh, This is true in the play The Lion King. I guess not initially a play, but a movie. But if you've seen the play, it happens just like this. So the opening scene is unmatched in this play, as far as I'm concerned. So you're in the audience, and the lights are dark, and they come up. And all of a sudden, there are characters all around you, dozens of characters, literally in the audience, parading around the stage, belting out this opening number that'll take your breath away. But the whole point of that opening number actually comes at the very end. So the music swells, the the supporting actors take their places, and the scene ends with this deafening boom of the bass drum, and one previously unseen character is being held out in the spotlight for everybody to behold. It's Simba, right? And there's no mistaking the point. All throughout the opening scene, he was in the background. But by the end of that number, no one in the room is confused about who this story is actually about. From here on out, it's his show. I think this is something like what we have in the book of Exodus. Chapters 1 and 2 set the stage already. They're just bustling with supporting actors. So we covered this last time. In these chapters, we found ourselves in Egypt. And there we met Israel, and we met Pharaoh, and we even met Moses. And right at the end of this opening number, this, the tension is mounting. Kings die, enslaved people are crying out for help. The music swells, the lights go dark. The spotlight burns a circle on the center of the stage. It leaves all the supporting characters in the dark. And who steps into that spotlight? What's your main character? It's God. Look back at Exodus 2, 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Everything and everyone up to this point has been essential but supporting action, It's all been one extravagant parade setting the foundation for this one main point. And the main point is that this is God's show now. You've met Moses, you've met Israel, you've met Pharaoh. Now reader, now church, meet your God. And this is Exodus chapter 3. So if you're here this morning and your question is, who is God? And what is God doing in the world? I think you've come to the right place. Because here, in Exodus 3, the main character, the main character of the Bible, the main character of your life, takes center stage. Look down at the story. So after this dramatic opening number, the story cuts to a new scene. So now in Exodus 3, we have an older Moses, now a shepherd, guiding his sheep in the wilderness, and he comes to a mountain. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. All right, again, one of my favorite things about a stage play is when everything goes dark and the lights come up on a brand new scene. And when this happens, you've got to pay attention because the set design tells you a lot about what to be expecting. So certain recurring sets serve as the setting for similar recording Uh, Recurring important scenes. And it's the same way in biblical narrative. So in what kind of scene is chapter 3 set? Verse 1 tells us the lights come up and Moses finds himself on a mountain. And this fact should kind of pique our interest from the jump. Because over and over and over again in the Bible, when a main character wanders off onto a mountain, there's another character waiting there for him. Who's that? It's God. In the Bible, scenes on the mountain very often become scenes where heaven and earth meet. They're places where God reveals himself to his people. Think of a New Testament example. Jesus himself on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here, Moses, he comes to a mountain here called Horeb, later on called Sinai. And what does he find there? Listen to what happens. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, we were told that God did what? He remembered his covenant with his people. And here, what is God's first action after remembering his covenant? His first action is to show up. He reveals himself. He makes himself known. God remembers his covenant, and then he shows up on the scene. And this here is what we refer to as a theophany, that is a God appearance. And what was this appearance like? Well, listen, when we're, when we're dealing with the reality of an infinite God appearing to finite people, there are going to be more questions than answers. So if that's what you're thinking right now, I think you're following along because it's true here. But what we know from the text is that verse 2 says, "...the angel of the Lord appears to Moses." But then notice, subsequently, the voice who calls out to Moses from within this bush is referred to as who? It's God himself. All right, so in this God appearance, we have have both distinction and sameness. All right, so we have a being who seems to be distinct from God, yet who is identified with him as the Lord himself. This is why some people conclude that this is the pre-incarnate son of God. I'll be honest, I'm not sure. But the point we can be sure of, in an inescapably mysterious way, is that here in Exodus 3, the Lord himself condescends and accommodates himself so that he could be clearly seen and known by the man Moses. So here's the important thing. In remembering his covenant, God came near. God desired to be seen and known, and God made a way for that to happen. Church, here's a great truth just to start us off for the morning, and that is that God does not stay hidden. God makes himself known. If you want to know the one true God, you can know the one true God. As we said, this is what Exodus 3 is all about it's revealing who God is and what God's doing. In fact, these are the two things that we see done twice over in this chapter. And that's all I want us to see and consider and apply this morning. These two things. So kids, if you're taking notes or you're thinking about how to track with this sermon, here are two things. We want to think about who God is and what God does. And I think this chapter just gives us those two same points twice. Who God is and what God does. And in verse verses 1 through 6, we have the first instance of God revealing who he is. So who God is, that's kind of part one. So notice in Exodus 3, before God tells Moses who he is, God shows Moses who he is. This is what we have here at the beginning. Look at verse 2 again. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So Moses comes to the mountain, and here Moses finds a single bush on fire, but Evidently, it's rather obvious to Moses that this is no ordinary fire like he may have encountered before on a mountainside. This fire is different, and in what way? Verse 2 goes on, it says, Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. I don't know about you, but every single fire I've ever witnessed needed wood or something in order to burn. And you know how I know that? Because the wood got used up. And once the wood was used up, the fire went out. And that's because fire, in order to exist, it must be fueled by something. Fire is dependent. It's dependent on something else being used up in order for it to exist, in order for it to live. But here in Exodus 3, we have Moses witnessing a fire. And what is this fire used to burn? nothing. It burns, and it burns, and it burns, and the bush is not used up. Unlike any other fire ever, the fire that Moses is encountering on the mountainside needs no fuel. It doesn't go out, it doesn't fade, it doesn't change, it just burns. And who, remember, remember what or who Is this fire? It's the Lord God. The Lord appears to Moses as a fire that needs no fuel. And the message is that he is a God who lives, who burns on his own. God is a God who simply is you know, In this light, it's a bit funny that we refer to this passage as the burning bush because the whole significance of it seems to be that the bush does not, in fact, burn up. More to the point, this is a passage of the, the self-fueling fire. And this is who God is revealing himself to be. Who is God just from this one instance? Who do we know God to be? He, The one true God is self-sustaining. He's independent. He needs nothing else to exist in order for himself to exist. God simply is. And Moses is intrigued. Look at verse 3. Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. All right, so in his grace, God continues to reveal himself. He even calls out to Moses from the midst of the bush. Again, we don't know exactly how this happens, only that it happens. The point is that God wants to disclose himself to Moses, but notice he has to protect Moses from his self-disclosure. You see that? So God both draws near to Moses, and yet he exhorts him in the very process to keep his distance. Actually, in fact, Moses, take your sandals off, because just my, by my, the simple reality of my being present here, you found yourself not on a common mountainside, but on holy ground. By God's accommodating grace, Moses has found himself in the presence of pure holiness. Who is this holy, self-sustaining God? Look at verse 6. He makes it clear. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The point here is that we know this God. God. This God is not new to the story, and this is the point. This is no NGOTB. Got it? New God on the block? This is no new God on the block. Moses and we, we need to rest assured that it's not that some other, some other new deity has taken over the throne since Joseph left the scene. That may have been the temptation in such a long time since God had shown up in a certain way among his people. The point is that the same God is still God. So the sufferings of his people have not changed him. Egypt's oppression has not changed or unsettled God. Pharaoh's reign has not intimidated God. 400 years of being cast aside has not diminished who God is. God shows up and he says, look at the bush, Moses. It uses no fuel and yet it burns as bright as day. It doesn't change. It doesn't fade away. And this is your God. This is the God of your father. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses' response there in verse 6, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. You bet he was afraid to look at God. Church, our God is a self-fueling fire. This is who we worship. So this is who God is. Second question then is, well, what is God doing? And this is what he comes to in verses 7 through 12. What God does, let's consider this. What God does. Listen to God's words there in verses 7 through 9. the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So, picture, picture Moses in this scene. He's, he's now shoeless, his feet in the dirt, his face in his hands. A holy fear has now infected his heart. God has shown up, but why? He tells him. God tells him, he says, I'm here because I saw my people being tortured. I'm here because I heard my children crying out for their father. I'm here because I've seen every second of the suffering of my people. God shows up because he says, that's enough. I'm taking my people home. It's time. Verse 8, he says, I have come down to deliver them. Church, think about this. What does this holy, dread-inducing, self-fueling fire of a God, what does He do? He comes down to take His people up. He comes near to sinful people. Why? To save them. This is what God is about. This is what God does. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you... And you're carrying with you some very legitimate concerns and questions. And I would just encourage you, let this revelation of God speak to your concerns and questions. So maybe you're in pain and you're wondering if God cares. Right here in the book, we have God saying, I have seen the affliction of my people. Or maybe you're here and you feel alone, like no one sees you. You're wondering if God sees you. Right here in the book God says to his people, I know their sufferings. I have seen their oppression. Or maybe you're really struggling. Maybe you're you're genuinely trying to live by faith. You keep praying, you keep calling out to God for help, but if you're being honest, it seems like it doesn't seem like any kind of immediate answers are coming to your prayers. And you're wondering, does God actually hear his people when they cry out in prayer for help? And here we have God's words to His people, saying, "I have heard their cries. You're, I have no doubt that your suffering feels long and unabating. But remember, this is God speaking after four hundred years of His people in suffering. And His point is that is that He sees, He has seen everything." He has heard every cry for help. He has known every moment of pain. And guess what? He's come down. He's not indifferent to it. God comes down. Maybe, maybe you're at a point in your life when you're finding that you're completely unable to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and come back to the Lord. And I would encourage you that's okay. Because the reality of the matter is that God comes down to you. Maybe you're at a point where you're realizing that (laughs) your sin is just going to keep you forever separated from coming to a holy God. And I would encourage you that that's okay because God has come down to you. Maybe you're becoming more and more convinced that you're simply a bad person. One who would never, ever be able to make your way up into the presence of a holy God. And I would just encourage you this morning, that's okay because the holy God has come down to you. The good news of the Bible is that God came down and rescued Israel and he has come down to rescue us. Think about this, any, unlike any of the world's religions, Christianity stands alone As the one whose God does not call his people to gird up their loins and make their way back up to him. What does our God do? He himself comes down to us. To do something that we could never do on our own. And the gospel is that this is exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. So maybe you're here and you've just heard of this Jesus Christ but you don't have any kind of faith in him. Let me encourage you. Why you need to place your faith in Jesus right now? Because Jesus, Jesus didn't just come as an example to us, to kind of live among us, to give us any, some kind of pep talk that we need to hear in order to be better people. Jesus is the one true eternal Son of God. And he has chosen He has chosen to not insist on holding on to His place in glory, but to come down and live among sinful people. He, he condescended to rescue us. And in the gospel, he didn't just condescend to manifest himself in a burning bush. He came all the way down. Philippians 1, that puts it like this. Philippians 2, sorry. Listen to these words. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't consider his position alongside God the Father something to be held on to. But he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant. How did he do this? Being born in the likeness of men. That's Christmas. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient as an example to us. Is that what he says? No. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death on a cross. That's Good Friday and Easter's coming. God came down to rescue us. This is what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus took on a real human body so that he could really bear the penalty of sin that is due to us. But notice, he came down to rescue in order to bring us up with him. Because Jesus did not stay in the grave. He resurrected, and having resurrected, he ascended. And having ascended, Jesus has been glorified. He now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And in this way, what the Bible says is that Jesus has become, he's like a firstborn brother. He's the first brother to be reborn out of the curse of sin into the blessing of eternal life. In other words, just like in the Exodus, where people were promised a new and wonderful land, right? There it's it's pictured as a land flowing with milk and honey, All these blessings that you just couldn't imagine unless you actually put your eyes on it. In the same way, the Lord has made a way for us not only to be delivered from the oppression that we currently find ourselves in, but to be delivered into blessing. The blessing of hope, of a new place, in the very presence of God. And when we're in Christ by faith, that blessing will never go away. This is the gospel. This is the good news In this church, this is very simply, this is what God does. He freely chooses to magnify his glory, not by staying up, but by coming down. By securing our redemption by his own hands, literally. And bringing his people up with him into the blessing of his presence. Listen, the question for every single person here this morning is very simply, are you among God's people? Are you in Christ by believing that he died the death that you should have lived? Have you been united to Jesus by faith? Listen, every single one of us are separated from Jesus by sin. The question is, the offer to you is that you can be united to Jesus by faith. Just by believing that his death secures your forgiveness. Are you in Christ, so that his death is your death, so that his death secures your forgiveness, so that his resurrection and ascension is just a roadmap for what's coming for you. Jesus Christ came down to earth to save sinners. You are a sinner. Why not be a rescued one? That's the question. This is what the Lord does. He rescues sinners. And this is all very comforting to us. It should be. And it may have been comforting to Moses in the moment. That is, until he hears what's next. Look at verse 10. <laughs> Certainly something that Moses didn't see coming. Verse 10. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What? All right, so here the Lord says in essence to Moses, Look, Moses, this is what I'm doing. It's glorious. Only I can do it. Now, come on, go do it. Think of this, the sovereign God who lacks nothing. He now chooses, he chooses to use means and really weak means at that to accomplish his saving purposes. This is certainly what Moses felt. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Great question. Moses cannot conceive of the fact that, that God would use him for such an awesome purpose. And frankly, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because God has just revealed himself as the one who needs nothing and needs no one. But evidently, the God who needs nothing is also the God that can use anyone to accomplish those same purposes. And he has chosen Moses. This is what's happening. And Moses here asked a completely, if you ask me, understandable, yet actually completely irrelevant question, which is What? Who am I? We're learning right along with Moses. What we're learning is that the point of this whole endeavor is not at all who Moses is, but what? It's who God is. Verse 12. Moses says, Who am I? God says, I'll be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt to serve God on this mountain. Don't you love God's answer to Moses' excuse? Moses says, who am I? And God says, I'm with you. He doesn't even acknowledge the question, does he, of who Moses is and his being. If you pause, it's a a really helpful point of application for us when we're struggling with our own inadequacy, I'd say. We're not Moses, we're not in the situation, but the truth holds. We look at what's ahead of us, and we ask many times over, we say, who am I? Lord, who am I? And what's the Lord's comfort? He doesn't actually pat you on the back, does he? You say, who am I? And the Lord says, I'm with you. We say, who am I? And the Lord says, no, no, no. Who am Who am I? And this brings us to a crucial juncture here in verse 13. Look there. Seems to have accepted it, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, All right, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? This is still kind of a hypothetical for Moses. He's still kind of feeling out this obedience thing. So he poses this scenario, he says, okay, so say I I do go to Egypt, right? So I go to the people of Israel who are in Egypt, and I, a guy that they don't know and don't remember, I tell them that their father's God sent me to them. What if they ask me to identify you? What if they say, the God of our father sent, sent you to us? What's his name? He says, what do I say? great question. Moses says, who are you? And this question is the occasion of a second revelation now of who God is. So who God is, part two. How would you answer the question? So elevator pitch for God, right? you got a couple floors, you're in the elevator, somebody says, you're a Christian, who's God? I think I'd start somewhere in the creator realm, sustainer, redeemer, covenant keeper. Maybe you say God is love, he's peace. None of those things are untrue. And none of those things are where God himself starts. Who is God? Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. God, God doesn't answer Moses' question with a name, but with a reality. The, the Hebrew literally reads, I am who or that, same word, I am. As one author put it, God's name itself is a message. God is very simply... The one who is. This is the burning bush put into words. So there we learn that God is independent. He's absolute. He's autonomous. He's self-sustaining. How would you put a picture like that into words? Something like, that is, that it is. And here God is saying, I am who I am. And this, verse 15 tells us, is how God desires to be known. He's saying, before you hear my name, understand my being. I'm the only one who simply is. And listen, we don't know everything this means. It's mysterious and it's hard to comprehend like God. But helpfully, the Lord goes on in speaking to Moses. He goes on there in verse 14. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Alright, so here the Lord shortens the message. How is he to be known? I am. Again, the Lord, he very simply, he's, he's absolute. He simply is. Some people call this the isness of God. Helpfully, again, he continues to Moses in verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Here, in God's grace, we finally have an actual name by which to call this God of Israel. His name, he says, is Yahweh, the Lord. And Yahweh is very simply the noun form of the verb, to be. He's kind of nounified the reality. He is the one who is. He is Yahweh. That's how you would say it. And this is exactly how he wants to be remembered. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Verse 15. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. There's your elevator pitch. God's name, as John Piper says, is a message. And what is the message? it's that yahweh is the one true utterly unique being do don't compare him with other gods because there's not a comparison to be made he is absolute being now this is not true with you and it's not true with me in this in his essential being god is absolutely unique one author, Alexander McLaren, he puts it like this You and I have to say, I am that which I have become, or I am that which I was born, or I am that which circumstances have made me. God said, I am that I am. All other being is derived and therefore limited and changeful. This being is underived, absolute. Self-dependent and therefore unalterable forevermore. We die. God lives forevermore. A flame that does not burn out. Therefore his resources are inexhaustible. His power is unwearied. He needs no rest or recuperation of wasted energy. His gifts diminish not the store which he has to bestow. He gives and is none the poorer. He works and is never weary. He operates unspent. His love, he he loves and he loves forever. And through the ages, the fire burns on, unconsumed and undecayed. What this meant for Moses and Christian, what this means for you, is that you have to stop looking at your life and saying, who am I to do this or that? You and I, we are not the point. The point is who your God is and who you are in him. Your God, your God is the great I am. He is who he is. Christian, your God has no beginning and no end. He is derived from nothing. He exists by and for himself. He's absolute reality. God simply is. He depends on nothing, which means everything depends on him. Because he is all wisdom, he needs no one to counsel him. God has never requested counsel because he lacked it. Because he has no weakness, he needs no one to support him. Because he's perfection, God cannot be improved. He can never and he will never become something, anything, become anything other than what he is right now. He is who he is and he will always be. God's name is his message. And doesn't this just undergird every sense of obedience to God and his sovereignty and providence? In the book club on Tuesday, we've been reading about God's providence from John Piper. We went through a passage where he's overviewing chapter three. I'll just just hand that over to you. Go there if you want a better definition, a better explanation of what that is. The point, Piper says, is that God's name itself is a message and The message which Moses will bring to Israel and which Egypt will see through them all is that this God, Yahweh, he's absolutely perfect and powerful and free. So Moses is to go to these people and hold up this view of God and say, that's the one you're following out into the wilderness. And church, I would just encourage us, that's the God we doubt every time our circumstances cower us inward and we ask, who am I? Who are you, Christian? Yahweh is with you. That's who you are. Who am I? I am is with me. That's who you are. You know, strangely missing from this narrative is the part where the Lord gives Moses a pep talk about how he's the right man for the job. As one pastor said, the Exodus did not depend on the competence of Moses, but on the presence of God. And I would say that's a point of your life as well. Listen, in this, in this situation, the call of God's service it came with the promise of God's presence. And that's true in your life too. The call to serve God always comes with the, the promise of the presence of God. We have all kinds of callings in this room, don't we? We have have motherhood, we have jobs, we have stages of life, we have singleness, we have children, we have lack of job, we have sacrifice, we have physical suffering, we have mental suffering. And the question that comes up naturally is, who am I for this? And God's answer is, I am. I am. And I'll be with you. The resurrected Jesus gave the same exact promise to his people, didn't he? Jesus said it was actually better that he, in his his incarnate resurrected state, it was better that he go away to prepare a place for us. Why? Not because God would stay away, but because God the Spirit would come down to, why? To be with his people. God's name is a message. He is who he is. And from here on out, his stated goal will be to magnify that name. Spoiler alert for the rest of Exodus and the rest of the Bible. What God's doing is magnifying the name that he is who he is. And he has mercy on whom he has mercy. So that's his stated aim. Starting next time in chapter 4, in the coming chapters, he will show it. And this brings us to a final point here. And that is that the great I am, he's doing things for his people. Listen to the way this passage comes to a close. Verse 16. We'll read to the end. <clears throat> the Lord continues on. He says, go, <clears throat> gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. A couple final things that the Lord does. The great I am does. One is that he knows the future. He knows the future. The plan, notice, the plan hasn't changed from earlier in the chapter, even from the book of Genesis. The Lord's just repeating it, but with a little bit more detail. He's now revealing to Moses his chosen servant how this promise will actually play out in Egypt and notice we won't go into detail here because we're going to flesh these things out as we go but every event the Lord speaks of here is in the future and yet he he can speak of it as if it's already done you see that the Lord knows both what the Israelites and Pharaoh will do he knows how each of them will respond you see it in the will language all throughout right in verses 16 through the end, there, they'll do this, and then he'll do that, and then you'll do this, and then they'll do this, and he'll do that, and you'll do this. The great I am, he knows. That's it, he, he just knows. But notice, it's not only that he knows the future, the great I am also controls the future. So over and above all these he will and they will and you will statements, there is one repeated uh, overarching statement from the Lord. And what is that? I will. He says, Moses, listen, everything that needs to happen to, to take my word from a promise to a reality, I'll make it happen. I will. This includes especially overcoming opposition to the promises. Notice that he singles out the response of Pharaoh in verse 19. He says that Pharaoh will not like this plan when he hears about it. He won't let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. Are we to, are we to be scared? No. The Lord says, guess what? I've got a mighty hand. And, I'm, and, and Pharaoh's going to see my mighty hand. What we see here. And what we're really going to see in the coming chapters is that opposition to God's promises coming true. So opposition which God sees, opposition which we so often fear, that opposition will actually become the occasion for God to demonstrate his mighty saving power. We would look and we say, God, why in the world, if you know and see and control the future, why in the world would you let opposition to your promises enter into your plan? And he says, because the opposition exists, you'll see my mighty hand in a way that you wouldn't see it otherwise. It's certainly true here in Exodus, as we'll see. And this is certainly true in Jesus' work of redemption on the cross. His opposition, death, it was actually the occasion for his power. That is the resurrection. And I would just say, if this is how God has worked to bring about his promises in the past, in Exodus, in the gospel, then, church, wouldn't we expect this to be the way that he works to bring about his final promise? Wouldn't we expect that this to be something of the pattern that he would bring about the glorious return of Christ, the establishment of eternally peaceful kingdom? You know, sometimes we act as if we're surprised that a cursed world is so full of opposition to the Lord Jesus. But Let me just encourage you as we close. If the exodus is any indication. Then the depth of opposition to Christ in this fallen world. As deep and as sorrowful as it goes. The depth of opposition to Christ in that coming day. It will only serve to magnify the, the height of Christ's saving power for ages to come. When you sense, when you feel that opposition of life in a cursed world, what you need to sense right on its heels is God's power that's going to be displayed in overcoming that curse. The opposition. He's going to to use it. It feels so terrible. And I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. But when he comes, there won't be any question of the way that opposition to the will of God and the kingdom of God in a fallen world will actually serve to magnify the power and glory of God in a resurrected world. Church, the Lord our God, he is the great I am. He is who he is. The great I am knows the future. He knows the coming actions of his people. He knows the coming opposition of kings. He knows that this opposition will not relent without being compelled by a mighty hand. And I just want to encourage you that you can take heart. He will show his mighty hand. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do until he comes? How do we we keep believing? One thing we do is that we remember and we confess that he already has come, just like he said he would. And this is exactly what we do every week in the Lord's Supper. One final time before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus, he brought his disciples to together. He gathered them for a meal. And at the end of that meal, he ate bread and they drank wine. And he says that those two elements were indicative of his very presence with them and his work of redemption for them. The bread, he says, was, it's his body. that was to be broken the wine he says is his very it is his blood that would be poured out on a cross to make payment for sins and as the church paul goes on to say that as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup we do something very specific paul says that when we come to the table and we eat and drink together we proclaim the lord's death until what until he comes It's a meal of faith. And if you come and partake, it will fuel your faith. So listen, if you believe, if you proclaim that truth to be true of you, if you believe in Christ's work of redemption on the cross, if you've placed your faith in him for the forgiveness of of your sins, if if you believe that Jesus is coming again in power to overtake all the sin and curse of this world, then you should come and celebrate this Lord's Supper with us. This even includes those of you who aren't members of this particular church, but if you're a member of another church who preaches the same gospel that you've heard here today and you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, then you should come and celebrate with us. Maybe that's not you. Maybe it's that you're realizing that maybe you're a Christian only in name, not by faith. If that's true, if you're seeing that maybe for the first time, then I would consider, you, I would encourage you to pause. Maybe your sin is driving you to Christ in a whole new way this morning. Maybe you need to come to Christ before you come to the table. If that's you, don't leave without talking to us about that. And if you're here and you know yourself not to be a Christian, I can't imagine a better place that I'd want you to be right here and now. So as Christians come to the front and celebrate this, you hold tight. Don't come to the front to be celebrating something. Uh, That's not quite true of you yet. Use this time to consider the fact that the great I am, the great God of all the earth has come down to draw near to sinners, to save you. Maybe you're convinced this morning that you're a sinner. Maybe you're convinced of that for the first time. If that's true, then be convinced for the first time also that Jesus is a savior of sinners. The one true God has Come down to bring us up. What a wonderful truth. Before we come and celebrate together, let's, we're encouraged to take some time to examine ourselves individually as a church body. So let's do that. We're, we do this through prayer. We do this through confession. So I'll give you a minute or so to pray, confess on your own, and then I'll lead us in a prayer of confession together, and then we'll come forward. So let's pray.